Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching online, or later on demand, or even listening to our podcast, it's a great day to celebrate Jesus together. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. There's no need to pretend that everything's perfect in your life. It's certainly not an hour's. We are regular people on a journey, allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives, one little step at a time, learning to live like Jesus. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. We love to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. So if you're on that journey too, we're looking forward to lending a hand. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us. Maybe you're skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking questions and looking for answers too. So I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church by checking out our Facebook page or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. brought here today by the love that Sarah and Davis share for each other. We're going to be so happy. We'll be so happy. I'm going to crush it at being a husband. I really hope she looks like her picture. Pete says she has a good personality. That's a red flag. Davis! Whoa, that is one beautiful personality. Cutie alert. Thank, Thank you, you, Pete. Pete. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I uh, oh. I got you a latte. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, latte. Why did I just say that? <laughs> Quick, say something. Oh, yeah, that's dairy. Probably shouldn't immediately correct him. Uh, so do you... sports? Failure. Yeah, I love golf. What? No, I don't. I hate golf. Me too. Yes, I love with the chipping and the putting birdies. Nope, tweet, tweet. <laughs> Get a hold of yourself. Um, so what are you looking for in, in a relationship? Oh my gosh, I'm gonna die alone. Uh, oh, um, you know, it's, uh, um. Someone just like me. Someone who's just kind of their own person. Someone pretty adventurous. Someone who likes to stay at home. Someone who'll just listen to me. Someone who doesn't talk too much. Someone who isn't intimidated by how much money I make. Somebody who doesn't mind how little money I make. He looks like a good dad. Hope she doesn't want kids, like, soon. Um, you know, it's, uh, like another person. Oh, that's me. I mean, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I think I love her. Yeah. Wow, time flew by. <laughs> it's over? Think fast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, you gotta, uh, do you want me to, huh. maybe, should I give her a hug? Is that weird? No. <laughs> Okay. No, kiss. Ha, okay. No, wait. Oh my gosh, what do I do? Uh, this is great. What is this... happening? <laughs> Go. Okay. Ooh, he smells good. <laughs> well, I'll just see you. Well, you messed that up. 
It's okay, we'll crush our second date. Uh, you know, as awkward as that first date was, I'd guess that most of us ha could think of one or two or maybe ten that, uh, of our own first dates that weren't much better. It's a wonder any of us makes it to a second date, isn't it? Welcome to part three of our series, What Happy Couples Know. If you've been here the last couple of weeks or watched the last couple of messages online, then you know you're beginning to understand where we've been headed. Uh, we, as we ask the question, what do happy couples know? And what they know is that over time, sometimes even right from the get-go, most of the time, our hopes, dreams, and desires become expectations. What feels all light and fluffy like a wisp of a cloud to us, what smells like summer to us, becomes an expectation to someone else when we hand them off to that someone else expecting them to fulfill our hopes, dreams, and desires. Who wouldn't want to navigate family life the way I want to navigate family life? Who wouldn't want to resolve conflict the way I want to resolve conflict? Who wouldn't want to earn, spend, and save money the way I want to earn, spend, and save money? I've already got the answer to the question, how many kids are we going to have? It's the right number, so that one will be easy. I even know how we're going to parent little Olivia, spelled with a Y. And Noah, also spelled with a Y, even though it's silent. I just know, I just know that she's going to love driving that minivan so that I can keep my little sports car. And I have Pinterest board after Pinterest board ready to help us decorate our home. She loves watching me game every night when I get off work, so nothing will change there. We're going to crush it. You get the point. We all come to relationships with hopes, dreams, and desires, and from where we stand, that's what they are. But from the other side to the other person, it begins to feel like expectations. So what happens most of the time is that what was meant to be enjoyable, what God declared good in the Garden of Eden, becomes transactional. And transactional relationships uh, take most of the fun out of marriage. In fact, they become a little dysfunctional uh, because you're always negotiating. We did it your way last time. Now it's, now it's my turn to do it my way. We went to your family last time. It's my family this time. We did your vacation last time. Now it's my turn to pick the location. I didn't say anything when you blew the budget last time, so you can't say anything when I blow the budget this time. It's this back and forth negotiating, which becomes, as we've discussed, a debt-debtor relationship. And here's the problem. In a debt-debtor relationship where you are always negotiating these transactions, the best negotiator always wins. He always wins. She always wins. I knew the best way to slide that one in. I had my approach planned all out because I know what triggers you and what justifications you'll go for. My plan worked. I won. She won. And the problem is that in a relationship, when someone wins, the relationship loses. When I win, we loses. When you win, we loses. So we, we bring this bucket of hopes, dreams, and desires into the relationship. And here's the tricky part. What we really bring into the relationship isn't the kind of stuff that you can really put in a, into a bucket because so much of it is intangible. 
It's the kind of stuff you probably haven't given much thought to, especially if you're young when you get into the relationship. But even then, this intangible stuff isn't just the stuff of young people. These are emotional intangibles, these, the relational intangibles. When you think about happy relationships that will be successful in the future, you think about this stuff. You want to be respected. I know I do. You want to be desired. You want to be admired. As men, we want whoever we spend our life with to think we have what it takes. And the reason we want them to think that we have what it takes is because we're in a constant battle with ourselves wondering if we've got what it takes. We want to be cherished, protected, defended. We want to be trusted. Nobody wants to be with somebody who is always checking up on them. And of course, we want somebody who is trustworthy. I want to be prioritized. Nobody wants to compete with his car or her job. You don't want to compete with their income. You don't want to compete with her family. You want to be pursued. You want to be attracted. You want him, you want her to be as committed to Jesus as you are. And I could go on and on. There are all of these invisible intangibles and so many of these things are good things. So many of them are a reflection of the image of God in us. It's just, what do we do with all of this intangible stuff? This is an ongoing relational dynamic. You never stop having these kind of intangibles. Every time you think you can put one of them to bed, something changes. Your season of life or some other dynamic, and then it crops back up in another form. So as we've learned, happy couples know that in order to keep hopes, dreams, and desires from becoming and feeling like expectations, we have to make a decision. And if you strip off all of the glamour and boil it down to the basics, the decision is this. She doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe me anything. Yes, these are my hopes, dreams, and desires, but I'm not expecting him. I'm not expecting her. Then last week, we looked at the idea of mutual submission, probably the most powerful relational dynamic in the whole world. And while you might find some form of mutual submission today in some relationships outside of Christ, mutual submission finds its roots in Christianity, in Christ-centered relationships specifically. And the whole idea is this. In a Christian marriage, it's a race to the back of the line. It's a submission competition. In a Christian marriage, both people are trying to put the other person first. It's how can I put you first instead of how can I get to the front of the line. In a submission competition, in that kind of relationship, whenever it comes to a tug of war over expectations and hopes and dreams and desires, happy couples know that in order to win, the only way to win is to drop your side of the rope first and put yourself at the back of the line, which is very scary at times. It's scary to go first. But happy couples know that, that you have to go first in order to be last, in order to win in the relationship. But that still leaves us with all of this stuff. Our big bucket of hopes, dreams, and desires, tangible and intangible. What do we do with these? Fortunately for us, the Apostle Peter tells us what to do with this stuff. 
Most of us have some, at least some idea of who Peter was. He was one of Jesus' OG followers, original followers. And some of the most well-known stories of the New Testament have to do with Peter. Uh, his ride with Jesus was filled with highs and lows. He got to do some really cool stuff like walk on water with Jesus. But he also had a big mouth, a big enough to insert his foot on more than one, of a, one occasion. His mouth got him into trouble. He talked too much. And then, at the end, he was a coward. But that didn't keep him from being one of the first, one of the few that looked into the empty tomb to find that Jesus had risen from the dead. Peter is worth listening to, not only because he spent three-ish years learning face-to-face -face with Jesus. He had an inside track with Jesus that many of us would gladly trade places for. Peter was there for everything Jesus did. The stuff we know and the stuff we don't know. I don't know if you know this, but the Gospels don't tell us everything that Jesus did. In his Gospel, John the Disciple tells us that there aren't enough books in the world to contain everything Jesus did. Peter was there for all of that. And then after Jesus resurrected and then returned to heaven, Peter was instrumental in the founding of the church. He went on to teach what Jesus taught to all of these new Christ followers before facing persecution and death, most likely in Rome under Nero. If you were here for our last series, you probably remember that. And if you were here for our last series, you might even remember the verses that we're going to look at in 1 Peter chapter 5. At the time, we didn't read them with our hopes, dreams, and desires in mind. But that's the beauty of God's Word. It is living and active, which means that today we're going to find a relationship principle that can help us. It isn't a relational principle specific to marriage or romantic relationships. So it can be helpful in all of our relationships, but it's probably going to seem a little weird. It might even make you feel a bit uncomfortable, especially if you haven't bought into all of this Jesus stuff. Uh, if you're skeptical about Christianity and Jesus, especially, just hang on for a few minutes and listen to the words of this man who actually knew Jesus. Besides, none of the alternatives to what Peter suggests work anyway. So where does that leave you? What do you do with this stuff? With that stuff, are you going to just try to ignore it? Pretend it doesn't exist? That's a prescription for an unhealthy emotional life. Are you just going to give and give and give and give and give and never acknowledge what's in your heart? Just ignore desires that might even be God-given just so you can keep the peace? It'll steal your joy and wear you out. Your relationship will never get healthy because you'll end up unhealthy. You didn't get into your relationship for that to become your end. Just ignoring and shelving your hopes, dreams, and desires won't make your relationship better. But it will slowly undermine your relationship and set you up to exit the relationship, which won't solve anything. Because wherever you go, you are there with you. You'll, you'll just take you to the next relationship and start all over again. And it certainly won't model a healthy, happy relationship for your kids. And believe me, your kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews need to see a godly example of a healthy, happy marriage. So, as weird as it might seem, just bear with me. What do we do with all this stuff? 
In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter tells us as he picks up on this, this put others first idea, he doesn't use the phrase mutual submission like the Apostle Paul did. He uses a different term. I'll make sure to connect the dots and make this practical for us. But here's what he says. Remember that this context isn't specifically the marriage context or dating context. As this chapter opens, Peter has been reminding the elders in the church of their responsibility to lead well. And then as we get to verse 5, he pivots to address the responsibility of younger men in the church to honor their elders. Let's pick it up halfway through verse 5 because that's where he zooms out again to address everyone. He says this, and all of you, this applies to everyone, and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. Now this is the generic relationship principle that we're going to apply to romantic relationships in just a moment. Dress yourselves in humility. That is, make sure that you are characterized by humility. In other words, go small. Go to the back of the line. Allow others to go first. In every relationship interaction, at every decision point, in every transition, any time there is any sort of potential conflict, here's what you should ask yourself. What would a humble person do? Let's be honest, no one really thinks this way. It's not natural. What would a humble person do? You know, even if you aren't a humble person, well, you don't have to be a humble person to know what a humble person would do. And you should know what a humble person would do because Peter is going to tell us why it matters and you should be interested in the why. But so we, we don't lose this thought. I don't want to just let this slip, slid, slide by. Let's all just ask this question out, line, out loud together. This might be weird if you're watching alone at home or at Starbucks, but that's okay. If this is the weirdest thing you ever, that you ever do, then you're doing better than me. So here we go. Let's do this all out loud together. What would a humble person do? That wasn't bad. Let's do it one more time just so it cements in there. What would a humble person do? I can't make you do it. You don't have to do it. But you should at least ask the question and answer the question. If I were humble, what would a humble person do? And whether you are a humble person right now or not, if you start doing what a humble person would do, you'll become a humble person. Just read your own mind. I can't read your mind. Nobody can read your mind. You know you want it your way. I don't know that. You know you're not really a humble person. I don't know that. I can only read your actions and what your actions tell me. So if you start doing what a humble person would do, you'll start being humble. And again, it's just you and me here. If you think, I'm already humble. Let me just be a pastor for a moment and say, nah, you're not really. Your actions speak louder than your words. So start having a conversation with yourself. What would a humble person do now? How do I move to the back of the line? How do I put someone else first? What would a humble person do next? Here's why this is an important skill to develop in all of your relationships, really, because of what comes next. Peter writes, and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another for God 
opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. Now think about that statement very carefully. Do you really want to set yourself up in opposition to God? Is that really how you want to posture your life? This might be obvious, but in a tug of war with God, you're going to lose. You aren't stronger than God. You aren't smarter than God. You're an ant to a giant. Do you really want to set yourself up in opposition to God? Isn't life challenging enough with God on your side? Like God pulls back from arrogance. He pulls back from entitlement. It's just not his jam. You know what is? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A better translation would say he shows grace or favor to the humble. It might be hard to pick this up in English, but this is an incredible promise. Peter is saying that when you humble yourself in a relationship, it is an invitation for God to give you the strength that you need, the endurance you need, the power you need to do the right thing. Humility is an invitation to God. In both the Old and New Testaments, humility, when we choose to go small, when we choose to head to the back of the line, when we choose to put others first, humility is an invitation for God to do something incredible in our lives and relationships. It leaves room for God to move. Arrogance just elbows him out of the way. And then Peter says, let me put this another way as we continue to verse 6. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. The New International Version puts it this way. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Not like he's, he's going to, not his hand like he's going to squish you. But under his mighty hand like a canopy of protection. Under a, the canopy of his authority. When you humble yourself, you are placing yourself in the safest place you could ever be because God leans in to you. God's favor and blessing fill the life of a person who says, what is the humble thing to do here? What does a humble person do when they are facing this situation or that situation? When she says this, how does a humble person respond? When he says that, how does a humble person respond? When you want to power up and win, when you want to get demanding, when you want to defend yourself, what would a humble person do? And then do that. You choose to place yourself under God's mighty hand, under his protection and his authority. And when you do that, he gets ready to do something for you. This is the second part of the promise. So in humility, we place ourselves under God's protection and authority. That's submission, by the way. Submit yourselves, and then at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. You've put yourself in a position for him to gently scoop you up into a place of honor. I'm picturing the gentle way King Kong picked up Fay Ray in the 1933 classic movie. But that's just me. And then he adds this invitation. Give all your worries and cares. All, all your frustrations, all of those he said, she says, he should, she shoulds, every one of your hopes, dreams, and desires. Give all of your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. God is giving you an invitation. 
Instead of weighing down your significant other with your bucket of expectations, he's inviting you to let him carry them. The NIV says to cast all your anxiety on him. Just toss the bucket. Fling the bucket. Give it to God your Father. Give him all of your unfulfilled dreams, your hopes, your dreams and desires aren't a burden to him at all. Neither will the expectations you've been carrying for others. They won't weigh him down. In prayer, we humbly release our grip. We let go of the hopes, dreams, and desires that are being crushed as we cling to what we want the way we want it. We move from trusting in our own knowledge of how to get what we hope and desire. We move from striving for our dreams. We release them into God's care. We let it go. I know that right here in this place, in this moment, that this is easier said than done. Because you've probably already done it a thousand times. We have this incredible tendency to give something to God in prayer, only to take it back when we say amen. It's like we're saying, here God, I'm going to open my fists so that you can see what I'm clinging to. I, I just want to remind you of what I want you to do here. I want, I want him to cherish me. I want her to stop buying junk. What, whatever it is. See God, this isn't a bad thing. You might even say it's godly. I just want him to love you like I do. This is what we're working toward, God. I just want to remind you, in Jesus' name, amen. And then we close our fists and go about our day. We've given it to God a thousand times and nothing has changed. Clearly, I don't know how to pray because nothing's happened. And especially if your marriage is in a challenging place, especially if that jerk has thrown it in your face again and you've talked about it till you're blue in the face and, and he still hasn't changed. She still hasn't changed. And God's not answering. Someone's got to do something, right? I guess that you weren't really casting your cares, not really hurling them at God. You're just being polite with God because that's what good Christians do. When you pray polite prayers, you allow yourself to pick back up the hope, dream, or desire after the amen. It's still yours. You haven't thrown it far enough. It's still within your reach. It might be time to have a really angry prayer, the kind where you throw that thing so far you can never get it back. Years ago, Dee Dee was in bed sleeping, and I couldn't sleep, so I got up. Uh, I decided to, to get up and catch up on the checkbook. I always put it off as long as I could because Dee Dee and I often weren't on the same page financially. Money has always had a way of stressing our relationship. And as I say that, please understand that I am not saying that she was or is always wrong or that I was or is always right. We both carry our share of financial stupid. We were always in the same book, just not on the same page, different pages. So I always put off balancing the checkbook because I was afraid I'd find something that put that balance that was always teetering, threatening to topple, off balance. And wouldn't you know it, sure enough, at the end of a long month, the kind of surprise I hate, $323 at Target. I don't know what it was for. It was probably for something totally legitimate and needed. At the time, that wasn't the point. What was the point? My carefully managed cash flow expectations were flushed down the drain 
once again. My temperature went from cool and collected to boiling over in 3.2 seconds. I was seething. It's probably a good thing that she was asleep because I would not have handled a conversation well in that moment. So in my anger, I took it out on the only other one awake with me. I threw my hope of ending the month in a positive financial state. I threw that hope so hard, it was like a Hail Mary. God had to run just a little bit to catch that big ball of rage I was hurling at him. And I'm not overstating this for an illustration. It's true. But here's what's really amazing. Everything has been different since then. And what I mean by that is that it isn't that Didi and I are always now on the same page about our finances. It isn't that she never squeaks one out when things are tight. It, it isn't that we're never frustrated with each other about some financial thing. I think every marriage has an Achilles heel of some sort, something that rubs the wrong way for life. Money is probably that thing that will keep both of us on our knees. But my temper tantrum with God didn't magically fix the challenge in our relationship and finances. What it fixed was me. In my honest prayer with God, I gave him the responsibility of managing our finances with a little humility mixed with a lot of anger. I admitted I needed him to be him for me, for Didi, and for our bank account. I gave up control threw it so far that I couldn't get it back and now I wouldn't take it back if he offered it to me. If he wants to fix something in Didi or me with regards to money, he is perfectly capable of doing it himself. That's what casting your cares looks like. And it ain't always a very pretty process. What Peter is saying is that you're going to take all of this energy that you've been wasting down here and you're going to give it to your heavenly father, not to your wife, not to your husband. You give your hopes, dreams, and desires to Jesus. Peter didn't make this up. In fact, if you're looking at your Bible, that phrase, give all your worries and cares to God, might seem familiar to you. If you've read through the Psalms, you'll find it there. Peter lifted this one from one of King David's psalms written hundreds of years earlier. Uh, Peter probably learned this from Jesus. I mean, for three years, they'd watch Jesus go away and pray, and they'd probably look at each other like, I don't think we're doing this right. These Jewish boys had memorized all kinds of prayers, and they would watch Jesus pray, and they were like, that's different. It's like he's wrestling God, it's in a wrestling match. Their praying was just not that way. So one day they went to Jesus and they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. Which means we've been praying, but we, we don't pray like you pray. So we must not, must, must not be doing it right. Now, years later, Peter's learned a few things about prayer. You just unload on your Father in heaven. You cast like you're fishing, like Peter used to cast a net from the side of the boat. You just fling it at him. So he lifts this phrase out of a Psalm of David, Psalm 55. And I want to quickly read through some of it because it's a great example of what we're talking about. When David would write, he'd bring all of himself to the table. He was a poet, but he was also a warrior who's been covered in the blood of his enemies. He's a king 
but he's also a shepherd. An adulterer, but also forgiven. He's a father, a grandfather, a husband, a husband, a husband, a husband, a husband. I forgot how many he has. He's got all of these roles. And time and time again, we see that he'd recenter his relationship with God as he wrote out his prayers, like, like a journal. Maybe even sang his prayers. He ranted, prayed, and sang. Quite a combination. But since God himself describes him as a man after God's own heart, I think we'd do well to model our prayers after him. So here's what he says in Psalm 55, beginning in verse 12. This is his rant. It is not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It is not my foes who so arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. If an enemy, not a friend, were insulting me, that I could handle. I expect that from my enemies. <laughs> He's writing this down. Instead, it is you, a man like myself, my equal, my companion and close friend. I, I can't believe he would do this. I can't believe she would do this. I can't believe they've turned on me. What good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. We used to go to church together. People used to see us and thought, what a lovely couple. Look at how close they are, how they get along. And now it's like, I can't believe this is happening to me. And then talk about honesty. Verse 15. Let death stalk my enemies. Let the grave swallow them alive for evil makes its home within them. Can you say this to God about other people? Do you know what the English equivalent of this is? To hell with them. That's what that means. To hell with them. He continues in verse 16, but I will call on God and the Lord will rescue me. Morning, noon, and night, I cry out in my distress, and the Lord hears my voice. Sometimes I am so burdened that one conversation a day won't cut it. So I'm out at morning, noon, and night. He hears the cry of my heart. He hears my voice. Sometimes I pray three times a day, and those aren't polite prayers. They aren't pretty. They're just honest. And as a result, he rescues me. He ransoms me and keeps me safe from the battle waged against me, though many still oppose me. Sometimes it feels like war, but he rescues me unharmed from the battle that rages against me. It's, it's coming at me from all sides, sometimes even in me. But God, who has ruled forever, will hear me and humble them. Interlude. God who is seated on his throne, sovereign over all, God who loves me, listens to me. And he will fight the battle for me. And that word, interlude, now just breathe. Take a breath. Now you can center yourself again. He's got this. Because my enemies refuse to change their ways. They do not fear God. As my parents used to say, I'll give you something to cry about. God will remind them of the order of this world. As for my companion, this person that I thought was my friend, that I thought was in my corner, but instead he betrayed his friends. He, he betrayed me. 
He said, she said, he promised me, she promised me. I thought we were on the same page. I thought we agreed. We had talked it all out and come to the same place. But he broke his promises. Verse 21, his, his words are as smooth as butter, but his heart is at war. His words are as soothing as lotion, but underneath are daggers. He's broken his promises. She's broken her promises, and he won't be wrong. She won't be wrong. Making me second-guess myself as if it's my fault. As, as what's, and what's coming out of their mouth isn't matching what's going on in their heart. Justifying, putting on an act in public, but you should see what he or she's like at home. Words piercing my heart over and over again. And then we get to the verse Peter lifted for us to remind us, give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. Again, the New International Version uses the phrase, cast your cares. Throw your cares. Hurl your cares at him and he will sustain you. He will take care of you. He will never let the righteous be brought down. Not so much for the wicked. You, O oh God, will send the wicked down to the pit of destruction. Murderers and liars will die young. But I am trusting you to save me. Those are some pretty raw words from a very disappointed man of God who isn't afraid to let the good, bad, and ugly out in a very honest prayer. Now back in the context of marriage or other relationships, I'd guess you've unleashed this kind of verbal hell on your husband or wife before, even if you only used your inside voice and not your outside voice, but probably with your outside voice a time or two. But have you ever talked to God that way? Did you know that you could talk to God that way? God loves these kinds of conversations, the I'm at the end of my rope kinds of conversations, the kind of conversation where your mom or dad would have said, don't talk to me that way, as they shut you down. But these are the kind of conversations where you just show up as you. All the pretense is stripped away. and You just cast, you spew, you vomit your humanity all over him. The humility of I don't know what to do is the kind of conversation that God loves to enter into. God, I'm so fed up. I'm so done. I wish I'd never said I'd do to her. I wish I'd never met him. God, I need you. I've had this kind of conversation with God on lots of subjects over the years. You wouldn't believe the kinds of things that bring me to the God, I'm so done with this, I don't know what to do next, help me place. <laughs> well, yes, you would. Because you face those kinds of things too. At work, at home, in your other relationships, maybe even at church. Our striving for control gives us the illusion of control. But time and time again, we face things that are out of our control. And we are reminded once again that we need God to show up and rescue us. Cast your cares. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He's never going to be offended. He's never going to shut you down. He's never going to ask you to clean up your language before you chat with him. If it's important to you, take it to him. That's what good fathers are for. Peter saw this firsthand. He saw this with Jesus. He experienced this with Jesus. At the end, Peter was just like David's friend. 
a faithless promise breaker. He betrayed his friend three times, betrayed Jesus. I don't know him. Three times. And you know what? Jesus not only took him back, but he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. He put Peter in charge of the entire Big C Capital Church organization. God's got big shoulders. He can take it. You're going to unload somewhere. Shouldn't it be with the one who actually has control and power to do something about it? God invites you to get on your knees as you give him your list. Give him your bucket. Give him your hopes, dreams, and desires. Give him your expectations, your disappointments, your heartbreak. Give him all of the things that other person promised, but that aren't working out the way you hoped and dreamed. Bring them to him in humility. Every day, every time they come to mind, every moment. Your humility is an invitation for God to step in and take over. An invitation to do something spectacular in your life. But let me warn you, the first remarkable thing God is going to do isn't in the other person. It isn't in your boyfriend or girlfriend. It won't be in your husband or wife. The first remarkable thing God will do will be in you. You will begin to see your bucket differently. You'll probably begin taking out some of the things in, from your bucket and tossing them by the wayside. You may discover that you were trying to squeeze something out of your husband or your wife or your fiance that was never in them to give in the first place. They weren't created to give it to you. You were just looking in the wrong place. Or in the end, it wasn't what you really wanted anyway. It might even give you enough space for perspective and you'll find out that you actually did want the same thing all along. But your transformation will never happen as long as you're taking your bucket to them first. You know, other than that Dee Dee and I are still married happily for almost 30 years now, my bucket today doesn't even resemble what I thought it would look like 30 years ago. It's better. Because I gave it to God first. Because Didi gave hers to God first. So cast your cares. Throw your cares as hard as you want to a God who says, bring it on. I can handle it. Now, as we end week three, happy couples know that hopes, dreams, and desires quickly become expectations. But happy couples also know that they just have to decide that the other person doesn't owe them anything. Happy couples know that, a, that marriage is a submission competition, a race to the back of the line. And happy couples know that sometimes you have to throw things. There's one more thing that happy couples know. We'll talk about it next week as we wrap up this series. Let's pray. Father, all of us have something that we, we hold on to with, with a tight grip, something that we, we want our way. It might not be specifically in our marriage. It might be in another relationship or some other, uh, other aspect of our lives, but we hold on to it so tightly that we, we, don't, we don't leave you any room to move because we've determined that this is the way it will be. 
And in the end, we, we just end up crushing whatever that is. So Father, teach us not to just open our, our hands and, and give something politely to you. Teach us how to, to cast our cares on the God who loves us and has a plan that is far greater than we could ever ask or imagine. If we'll just let you do your thing. If we'll just get out of the way in humility and let you do your thing. Teach us how to apply this principle in every relationship that we have. We pray in the, the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of the faithful giving of people who call Dayspring their home church. God's work in their lives has left them changed, has made them more like Jesus, and they've come to understand how God uses their generosity to encourage others to become like Jesus as well. So if you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege and to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing. Until we meet again, I am praying that God's richest blessings would overflow in and through your life.